Hi, it's Raina G, or Dr. G, Dr. Raina, however you want to refer to me. Uh, this is the Holistic Health Hotline. And you know how I think about holistic health? It's mind, body, spirit, global, and Native American in nature. So you will get politics, and you could get just about anything else that has to do with the mind, body, and spirit. Today, I basically want to talk about this trip I just took because it's full of politics and full of nature and uh, full of changes and impacts that people can make. Um, I drove from Alabama to New York City. It's about 20 hours, give or take, depending on the weather and the, and the uh, traffic. Um, and once you get into New York, of course, that's where you add the extra hour and a half coming out of the Lincoln Tunnel. You go through the Lincoln Tunnel, which is still an amazing feat to me. If you think about how New York City was built and how all of our tunnels and, and bridges and long 20-mile bridges were built over swamps and all of that, it's just amazing because nowadays I can go back to Buffalo um, every 10 years and the same construction is going on the same places. They don't seem to ever get anything done. And there's a reason for that, and I'll talk about that once I get back across New York State. But I came out of the Lincoln Tunnel, a little skinny tunnel, and um, traffic was, of course, what it is in New York around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And it took me an hour and 20 minutes to get from the Lincoln Tunnel to six blocks away. Um, and then, of course, it's a little upsetting because you have to know which lane you're going to be in next to either turn left or right, otherwise you're, you're in big trouble. But somehow my intuition worked okay with that. And, uh, and that was fine. Um, pulled into the Hilton Hotel at, on uh, the Avenue of the Americas and had a, a bellhop porter, whatever you want to call them, jumped to my car right away to get all the, the luggage out. And I said, well, I need a valet, too. And I was with a cane because I do have an, an injury, a military injury from many years ago that came back to haunt me about six years ago. And um, when I'm my body's under stress or heat or just decides to act up, that leg will swell up very horribly and hurt, and I really can't walk. So I, I had a cane with me, and I said, well, uh, I need a valet, and they said, well, you have to drive your car around to the other side of the hotel and go in the construction entrance and leave the car with the valet there, and I said, and how do I get back to the hotel? And they said, well, you walk, <clears throat> and I showed him the cane, he goes, I'm sorry, that's all we have. This is the Hilton Hotel in New York City. No accommodations for those who might not be able to walk. It was just amazing to me. So I dropped the car off in this terrible construction garage. It's just full of all kinds of weird materials. And um, I finally got a ticket for the car. And I said, now which way do I go? He says, you got to walk all the way through, go around the corner, find the second door, and that'll take you into the lobby. And then you go across the lobby to get to registration. That's about a half mile in and of itself. So okay, I do what I have to do to get where I have to go. And I get halfway across the lobby, there's a little, um, not there's no benches or chairs or anything. There's something in the middle of the lobby that has a statue on it, and there's just enough space around it to lean. Uh, so I tell the person, and, and there were 40 or 50 people in each line for registration, uh, and I said, okay, I need to just lean because I'm going to fall, otherwise it hurts so badly. And I, you know, don't worry, I was on pain stuff to, to try to make sure I didn't hurt, but I hurt anyway. And it's, it gets to the point where you're in so much pain, your body starts shaking. And you know you know that the next step is very likely to be the last step. So I leaned against this statue, and I told the people who were almost in front of me, 
but we're last in line. I said, I'm right behind you. Save my place. I said, when you get up to the to the desk, um, just, you know, the reservation desk, just wave to me, and that's when I'll stand up and get in line behind you. And they kind of understood me. I didn't know till later that they, they really didn't understand English. <clears throat> but eventually, I must have looked pretty bad because um, one of the bellhops came over and said, asked me if I was okay, and I said, well, I can't stand, uh, and I'm, I'm just waiting. And he says, well, hold on, I'm going to take you someplace else. So he took me to the Diamond Registration uh, Reservation Desk, and... Nobody was there, and I can <laughs> kind of make a joke about that and say I, I bet there aren't many diamonds at that hotel. But um, So they, they checked, and they said, oh, okay, so you're here for one night? And I said, no, I'm here for two. And they didn't have that down anywhere, and everything was sold out. And I said, look, just key it for one night, and if I have to leave after my talk tomorrow morning, I will. So we set that up, and I went to my room. I got to my room, and I was a, a speaker there for a conference from YAI, which is a huge nonprofit organization. And what the conference was about was dealing with children with disabilities in the classroom. And, um, and that's one of the things that I do of the many is speak to teachers and teach them how to use certain tools in the classroom so that um, that classroom is managed in a good, productive, loving way. And it changes people's lives when you do that. So. I called down on the desk and I said, do you know where registration is for the YAI conference? And they told me it was on the second floor and it lasted till 4.30. Well, I had about 20 minutes to change my clothes, shower, get dressed, and get down to registration. And when you are disabled, this is not an easy thing to do. I'm going to tell you, just putting shoes on by yourself when your feet have now swollen to the size of your legs, it can be difficult. It uh, doesn't mean I look horrible. I'm not grotesque looking, and you know, and if I was too bad, but but it's very difficult and very painful to do. But all right, so I get down to registration, and and I and they you know had my folder right there because I was the main speaker, and they told me where to report in the, in the morning, and and then they were packing up to leave, and I said, okay, so registration is over. Um, anything else going on? They said, no, not tonight. <clears throat> so I said, okay. I'm really hungry. I've been driving for like 20 hours. What's the best place to eat in the, in the hotel? And they said there really aren't any restaurants in the hotel. There's one little place called Urban Garden, but those are like wrapped up sandwiches you can take with you. And then there was a lounge that, that was basically a small bar, and they did have a small bar kind of menu. So I said, all right, I'll make my way there. And I went to the bar and looked at the menu and said, <laughs> I didn't want most of anything that was on there, but I said, you know, I asked the waiter, I said, can I just get, like, a hamburger or something? He says, oh, sure, you want cheese on it? I said, well, okay. He says, you want bacon? I said, sure. Well, that was an $18 hamburger, $18 for that hamburger. <clears throat> and I, I was like, that's the last time I eat in the hotel. Um, I'd have to find something that was close enough that I could walk to where I could eat in the morning or whatever. So I ate my $18 hamburger and decided I wanted to go outside and just see New York. I hadn't been there since since 9-11. And 9-11, I drove up from Alabama that night and um, had to park in New Jersey and find my way over to the piers so I could help people there and help animals there. And I spent a few days in New York amid that, amidst that acrid smoke and dust and everything. And but I, So I hadn't been back, and um, I wasn't close to where the World Trade Center was because I was on, on, on 6th Avenue, but it's still Midtown Manhattan and you could look all the way down 
to see where the trade centers used to be and look past the Empire State Building and close to Radio City Music Hall, blah, blah. So I like to people watch. So I went outside and sat on the best wall I could find that was close and just kind of sat there. And, and it was amazing how many people stopped to ask me directions. And I would look at them and tell them, I have no idea. I haven't been here in years. And, and they said, don't you live here? And I was like, no. And they, I said, they, some of them thought I was kidding. Like, I looked like I lived in New York, and I don't know why. Um, I'm not quite sure why, let me put it that way. I guess because I wasn't dressed up like a tourist pretending to be somebody I wasn't. I was just in jeans and a, and a, I don't even remember what kind of shirt I had on or whatever. But I was just, you know, acting like I was there. And um, I guess they they figured that makes you a local. So... <laughs> So, you know, one woman came up to me, and she was from another country, and she said, where's the Museum of Modern Art? I said, I don't know. Well, it turned out I was right across the street. I forgot that they, they label it MoMA, M-O-M-A, the Museum of Modern Art. It's right across the street. But I told her to go check with the cabbies. They would know where it was. And <laughs> I looked kind of stupid. Anyway, um, the next morning, I went down from my presentation, and I was originally supposed to have 125 people, then 200 and I had 500 and something, and it was way overflowing. Um, and the, the whole title of the presentation was to stay calm. So I had already a story of just coming into New York and how I had stayed calm through all of that registration process that I just described. And um, did a, a real good presentation, I think, to these people, and they just totally enjoyed it. They jumped up at the end and not just stood up and clapped. They jumped up and a rousing standing ovation, and everybody wanted selfies, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that made me feel good because I realized that they they did hear what I said, and they and some of them even requoted me out in the lounge area and the lobby area. They said they would never forget this or never forget that, and so it meant that what I said at the end of that presentation to them, especially because many of them were preschool teachers, I said, you know, you have the world in your hands. You have, you can change the world by what you're doing every day in that classroom. Because because every single one of those kids has the potential to also change the world. And, and you're the teacher. And I had teachers in my life who changed my life. I, I, you know, I was living in a cemetery and working jobs and going to school. And I was young. I was 10, 11, 12. And um, I'd get to school, and I'd, I'd feel safe there, of course. And I knew I didn't have to work, so I would be sleepy. It was time for me to finally sleep. And there was a, I only did it once a day, but there was one teacher who kind of knew that I was exhausted and why. And she would continuously send me to the library to pick up some books. And all the kids knew I was going to get sent to the library. And when I got to the library, the librarian would ask me to look through the books, and she'd send me over to a big overstuffed chair so I could make sure that the books were okay. And sure enough, I'd be sound asleep for an hour, and she'd wake me up right before classes changed, and I'd go back to the classroom with the books. But I got my hour of sleep. It was my power nap. And um, they took care of me that way. There weren't social service agencies, and I don't think some of those teachers would have sent me anyway because they, they know that those agencies will put you into prison, basically, and then foster care and blah, blah, all kinds of things could happen. So there weren't any, and maybe it was better that there weren't. Um, I think... You know, our kids today, I'm not the, it takes a village to raise kids, it takes a family. But if you don't have a family, you have to have the support of the community to make sure that those kids are, are safe and healthy and taken care of somehow, even if they don't know it. And many kids don't want to know it, believe me. 
So, okay, so I got done with my presentation, and I'm thinking, where am I going to eat that's less than 100 bucks? <laughs> and, and I tried to find, I did it, I walked one corner to another, and then one corner to another, and I sat down in this little fountain and area and watched the people for a while, and of course, the food trucks were everywhere on the corners, and I was quite shocked that all four corners and two side roads uh, stands were taken by the same people, the halal food, the halal guys, halal food which is Middle Eastern, and um, therefore blessed by Muhammad. And um, I said, why? are What is this about? And the lines at those carts to get that food were over a block long. And block long in, in New York is probably about an eighth of a mile. Every single cart, continuously, 24-7. People lined up to eat that food. And I was sitting next to some people who had, had taken their food to the to the where I was sitting, close to where I was sitting, eat, eating it, and I looked at it and I said, I don't even know what it is, but I'm sure it's good because they're eating it and enjoying it. It was some kind of rice and not pita bread, but some kind of flatbread and maybe chicken or something with it, and um, and they were eating it up. And I, I finally asked this one guy, I said, what is the attraction to this food? He says it's $7 for a meal. So instead of $18 hamburger, you get a $7 thing of food and you could tell how many people um, or how popular they were because they would put these containers into yellow bags that said the halal guys and everybody around that whole area was carrying yellow bags so they all had the same food um, interesting to me I, I did not stand in line and, and was not interested in what I saw anyway in the containers I'm, I'm sure that there's something else that was good or people wouldn't be there you also can't get a drink you can't get a bottle of water for under $5 or um, a, a, a Sprite. The Sprites are four ounces and it's $4, dollar an ounce. How people live in Manhattan, I have no clue, except that they must be playing the system and working something else because you can't live there. Even if, I don't, you know, I've made over $150,000, $200,000 a year in my lifetime. I couldn't live there. I couldn't do it. I had no Wi-Fi in the hotel. No Wi-Fi availability except for a little office space in the, off the lobby. They had two computers in it, and the line for that office space was just as long as every other line. And I said, I can't stand in line for three hours to check my email. Um, I could get it off my phone, but, but even the, the L, 4L, 4G, 4LG e network wasn't working right. So that was very difficult. So I was really out of communications, which is totally just not in, in my um, normal routine at all. But, you know, you get used to it. You can't get on the computer, and you can't get on your email, and you just don't answer anybody for a while. So that's the way that was, and that was okay. Um, I wasn't going to leave until the next day, and that's fine. They asked, they actually told me I could stay in New York for another week, and they'd put me up at the hotel. It was two ninety nine a month, uh, excuse me, two ninety nine a night. You know, so they'd already spent um, $600 on my room, which makes no sense to me at all, but, um, I mean, that's more than most people pay a month for rent, so, uh, I said, no, you know, I would leave the next morning, because I had other places I needed to go, and thank them very much, and, and, uh, took out my GoPro camera that I had one, and went back outside to take pictures of the street, and see if I could get the video working, and use the grip, and do all that stuff, and I got a little, and then I couldn't get the camera to turn off, so I'm like, oh god, it's gonna kill the battery, right, so, eventually I go back in, and I, I, just to make it to the elevator bank and was enough to exhaust me so I'd always have to sit down there and wait a few minutes and then go take the elevator up so I sit down next to this young boy 
or young man. He looked, uh, to me, he looked 25, but, and I asked him, I said, can you turn this camera off? And he says, oh, sure. And he grabbed it right away and, and you know, slid through the menu and said, you have to make sure Wi-Fi is off. It'll keep working, looking for your, for your phone. And I said, oh, I knew somebody under 30 would know how to do this in no time. He laughed. I ended up speaking to that young man for two and a half hours. He was from uh, Sweden, but he went to school in Hong Kong. His parents were Americans. He was in New York City to get all these tests done on him, uh, medical tests because of certain things that he told me. And I, I looked at him and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me ask you some questions. Being a holistic health consultant was not, not hard for me to do. I asked him three questions. I touched him in the middle of the back and said, I bet you it hurts right there. And sure enough, right on T8, he screamed. He says, oh, yeah, that's really, that's really bad. And, and he said, I said, well, did you fall? He said, well, I have low blood pressure, and I always have all my life, and I did. I fell back and hit my back. And ever since then, they say I have epilepsy, and they're doing brain scans on me. And I said, no, you don't have epilepsy. You have um, a forward-leaned right now T8 um, vertebrae and it's pressing on a nerve and that's what's causing you to have spasms and, and all kind. and he said I knew it I knew it I knew it I didn't want to believe the doctors I knew I didn't have epilepsy but I'm only 17 and I said 17 you're 17 years old I said this is amazing because I thought you're about 25 he goes no I'm only 17 and I try to tell my parents and I try to tell the doctors that I'm more in touch with my body than that and they won't listen to me and I said well if your mother shows up maybe we can talk to her so we continued talking about politics and Obama and the Manchurian candidate and physics and um, metaphysics and all kinds of stuff. The, the kid was just interested in everything, and he, he um, would go on his little notepad real quickly if I mentioned something and, and bookmark it so we could go back to it later. And he was just so amazing. And he asked me amazing questions and, and talked about himself, about what kind of impact. He says, I've already lived 17 years. And I don't know what kind of impact I'm making on the world. How many of your kids say that? How many kids do you think out in California surfing every day even even think about that? This 17-year-old is wondering what kind of impact he's made. He's already wasted 17 years. Well, I let him know he didn't waste anything because he had impacted my life right away. And, um, and I think that was a good thing. Um, at the end, his mother did show up, and I told her what my observations were and what my questions were and, and gave her the advice that she should, instead of spending tens of thousands of dollars on all of these <clears throat> makeshift brain scans that are telling you nothing, I said, why don't you start with a chiropractor and go get that spinal line so that the nerves, that's what they do is spinal nerves. I said, let them give you a couple of opinions. And she said, oh, I guess at the end, she says, I guess we should go to a chiropractor. I'm not sure she's going to. I think she probably thought you don't meet people in a lobby of a hotel and have them give you advice. But he totally trusted me. And he got up to leave, and he gave me a huge hug. And he thanked me for impacting the world. And he said he wanted to, to have an impact on the world like I did. And he was going to remember everything we talked about and take it back to his friends in Sweden and Hong Kong and share it's because that's how he knows the world changes. So that was wonderful. I mean, it was like, great. You know, I, I had to come all the way to New York City to find a 17-year-old who would finally listen. <laughs> so the next morning, I got up really early. No, wait a minute. That night, I, I was thirsty, and there was just no place to get anything. And I, I said, I guess I have to go to the lounge and uh, 
order a Coke or something because you can't even get bottled water. And I go to the lounge, finally make it there, a little mini lounge that had the hamburgers. And I sit there for about 10 minutes and people are getting up and leaving and nobody's coming in. Nobody says a word to me. Finally, I see this couple leaving and I said, well, are they closed or something? She goes, oh yeah, they were starting to close a half an hour ago. <laughs> I said, and they don't tell anybody. You just sit here waiting for a waiter and they don't tell anybody. Right, okay. She, was, she said, but the bar is still open till 1.30. Maybe you can get over there. So I go over to the bar and there's one little table with a little seat in the corner and I said all right I don't want to stand at the bar of course and I don't I don't drink so I there's no reason for me to really be there but I needed something like a ginger ale or something just to wet my whistle and um, I sat down at in this seat and this couple was sitting next to me a man and a woman and he got up immediately and started to walk away and he goes take care of my wife will you he's he's totally drunk and she turned to me right away and said, I'm not his wife, I'm, I'm his partner, but I'm not his wife, and don't listen to him, and blah, 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 blah. We got into a conversation, and we talked until the bar closed about her needing to write a book about her, how her husband had committed suicide, and then her other friend committed suicide, and how she was with this guy, and has been for seven years, and he comes back from the bathroom or wherever he was, and he says, so how you doing, Mom? And I said, oh, I thought... I didn't know she was your mother. I thought you were partners. And she he goes, no, she's my mother. He And she looks at me and she goes, no, he doesn't get along with his mother. So he calls me mom. And I said, and you're how old? And she said, 33. And he's how old? And she said, 46. And I said, I see. Well, he just, his mother just kind of disowned him. So he's, he's called, he calls me mom. And then she started telling me how rich he is, that he owns the largest, um, uh, harbor in New Jersey and has a house here and a house there and a house there and he's got wads of money in his pocket and blah, but he calls her mom and I'm like oh my god people are in such trouble such trouble but I talked to her for quite a while and he chimed in once in a while and he was pretty drunk and wanted to go to bed but he would not leave until she did because um, and went with him because he said he cannot go to sleep unless he lays on the bed and puts his arm over and sees that she's there this is a 46-year-old millionaire with a 33-year-old very charming and, and good-looking woman um, who's already had her own scars, okay? And they cannot be separated at any point for any length of time because he'll freak out that mom's not there. So I kind of enjoyed that. I, uh, we gave each other hugs at the end. We went outside for a while. I was looking for the ice cream truck that I had found before, and it wasn't there. And... Um, they sat with me, and this man came up to us because we were sitting there, black man, and he said, looked me in the eye, and he says, I haven't done drugs in three years, and I haven't sold any for more than three years, and I'm hungry. And I stood up and looked at him. I said, you know, long time ago when I was in New York, a panhandler came up beside me, started walking with me, and he started talking, and he said, you know, if I had money, the first thing I would do is put up big, big billboards that said, no panhandling allowed. And I said, well, that's a great idea, I said to him. And he put out his hand. He says, yeah, but you got to start somewhere. And I think I remember, I was about 26 years old. I gave him $5. I said, that's a great line. So I told this man, Jim, this. And he just looked at me, and I said, take off your hat. And he had a baseball cap on. He took it off. I said, I'm going to look in your eyes. And I looked into his eyes to see what I could see. And I said, now tell me the truth. When's the last time you did drugs? And he said, three years. I said, when's the last time you sold drugs? He says, over three years. I said, don't lie to me. He says, I'm not. So I grabbed, I went in my pocket. I think I had seven ones or eight ones or something like that. And I just pulled out this little wad of ones, seven or eight of them, and I handed it to him. I said, now, how old are you? And he said, 38. And I said, you've had 38 years. 
to make a difference in this world, and what have you done? He says, well, I have a couple kids. I said, are you in contact with them? No, they hate me. I said, you got some work to do. Now, $7 is not going to make you do that work, but what I'm going to tell you is going to help you do that work. And I said, you know, I've lived my whole life without anybody helping me or giving me money or, or going up to somebody and telling them I'm hungry or having to lie or having to cheat or having to do any of those things. I said, because number one, I believe in God. Then I said, and I also believe in love, that love is my religion, the earth is my church, and truth is my road. And I want you to remember that. And then um, my, the couple who was sitting with me chimed in and said, oh, you know, that, that this, I don't even know what they said. And I was watching him. And then he looked back at me. He said, tell me that again. And I said, love is my religion, the earth is my church, and truth is my road. And he repeated it very slowly. And he said, I'm always going to remember that. And I will make a difference. I will change. I promise. And I said, okay, then, you know, then God bless you. And, um, and he left. Well, then I said goodbye to this couple because the man had to get to bed and she had to be there so he knew she, he knew he was safe, I guess. And um, and I sat out there for about 10 more minutes because I didn't want to be in the elevator or whatever at the same time. And then about 10 minutes later, I hear God bless you from behind me. And it's Jim walking by and he had taken some of the money and he bought um, himself some food and he was eating it on the street like everybody does and walking to wherever he was going. And I had a feeling right then that he's still going to be in trouble and he's still going to have problems because he, he just is. He's just not ready. But that, that what we talked about was going to stick in his head and that someday I may hear about Jim from Manhattan and what he did for children or what he did for other people who were homeless or hungry because I really believe that he started to believe and that no one had ever taken the time to even try to help him do that. So those are my encounters in, in New York City, and um, they are political, because people are coming from all kinds of places, and the perceptions we have of them are just wrong. I thought the kid was a kid of 25. He was 17. The people who saw me on the street thought that I lived there. I didn't. The woman who from Wales who stopped by, she was from London, but really from Wales, she stopped by and sat right next to me, and started talking to me about the Tories and the Labour Party and how much she didn't trust this person or that or that party or the other. And then how much she loved Obama and how much he's done for America. And I said, well, that's your perception. I said, I would say that most Americans would disagree with you. How can they? I'll, and we got into a discussion about that. And I said, you really don't want me to go there because I can go on a soapbox on Obama for days without notes and without a breath if I have to. And she was pretty upset, but then we talked a little bit more about health care, and she thought it was so much cheaper, and I said, oh, yeah, there's some people who have premiums that are in line or lower than they were. I said, but their deductibles are sky high. Anybody talk to you about deductibles? She says, no, they don't talk about that in England. I said, of course not. I said, so if it used to cost you $5,000 a year, and now it costs you four, but you have a deductible of $10,000, how much does your insurance cost? She said, $14,000 before you can use your... I said, there you go. She goes, that's much higher. I said, yes. So maybe I changed her mind, too. I don't know. I, I really don't know. But it was time to leave the next morning, and I did. I got everything packed up and had to walk to the valet to get my car and then drive the car back to get the luggage and was exhausted by the time I got in that seat. Got out of New York City fairly quickly and uh, headed back across New York State. Stopped by to see a son-in-law for a few minutes and have coffee and went to Letchworth State Park so that I could tape it and and really give like a history lesson so I put the GoPro camera on my head because I had that accessory where you can wear it on your head and I checked it and made sure it was recording and 
started at Mount Morris, and which is the highest point of Letchworth, and gave a full history of how the Seneca Indians lived there and what how they were burned out um, by Sullivan's army and how they had to get moved to reservations and how the Genesee River runs backwards there and, and the slaves used to know that. And the slaves would actually follow that river to, to escape to where they needed to escape to and how Mary Jemison lived with the slaves and they were protecting her from Indians when she was actually Native American now and be, but because she looked white then she was white to them. Um, but they didn't look black to her because they were black and so were many of the Indians, so she didn't have any of the racial stuff going on at all. But the whole story and how where the Gardo Overlook is and Wolf Creek and the three different um, uh, waterfalls and the Glen Iris Inn and how William Pryor Letchworth fell in love with Mary's legend and had her reinterred, including... Uh, with the black walnut tree in Letchworth and how the statue was there and how I how I was told to go ahead and write the movie about her and that whole process. And, and as I was recording, I said, you know, and I'm going to turn up some of these roads that no one else ever takes because every time I come here, a deer will come out and, and, and greet me. And sure enough, I turned up the next road and here's this doe just lying there on the grass. It was just gorgeous. The grass was beautiful green right in front of part of the woods and it was a beautiful day. And I drove by and stopped and said hi to her. And I drove again and I did again and did again. I turned around four times and took pictures of her. And I said, you know, you're just being the sweetest thing. You're not running. You're not upset. And she perked up her ears and looked at me. And I said, yeah, we're good. And I left. And I knew that there were no other cars that were going to come up to where I was. Um, so I go down and I tell, I say on the tape, I thought, I said, uh, okay, I'm going to stop this here until I run into some more wildlife. I don't think I'm going to. So... But I'll stop it here. And I took the camera off and I checked it. And for whatever reason, it timed out and didn't record any of that. And um, now I was at the other end of the park. And I said, I really don't have time to go do this again. <laughs> so I went the, I went to a road that said it was closed, but it was still had an opening. So I went through the closed road because I knew where I was going. And sure enough, the other end was not closed. And I came out, drove to Buffalo. Um, I had to stay at a, a motel when I first got to Buffalo. And... Uh, was down in Orchard Park, um, which is not even Buffalo. And sure enough, I stopped, and and who owns it but a Pakistani or something? And boy, did we get into a thing because he wanted me to pay with cash, and he wanted me to pay up front, and, and I didn't even know what kind of room I was getting, and we got into it. And I usually book through Booking.com, and, and you don't have to pay till you leave. And he was just, and he couldn't even speak English. He was yelling at the guy who was trying to take care of me, and it was almost violent. I mean... There was, if I wasn't the kind of person I am, who I'm basically fearless, if I was somebody else, I would have been pretty intimidated that if I don't do exactly what he says, I, my car's going to be gone, I'm going to be dead. That's how it felt. But I was exhausted. So I went to my room and stumbled up the stair, because there's one stair to the room I haven't had that in a motel in years, and spent the night listening to everybody else getting um, their sexual gratification for two or three hours at a time in all the rooms around me. And made sure I got out real early in the morning um, and just got out of there. And I said, you know, Buffalo Orchard Park, you didn't it was never like that. Buffalo, of course, has gone downhill. So I drive into Buffalo to, to minister to a woman who's 93 years old. If, if not for her, when I was 24, um, so whatever, that's 40, 40 years ago, when she was, what, 53 then? If she had not been around... On many of our bus trips, um, 
that were filled with care bags and all of that stuff while I was going to programming school before I worked for IBM and all those things. I don't know if I would have survived. And the good thing about surviving with Betty is that she's, she laughs all the time, and those laugh lines were still there. She's a little shorter and a lot wider and much more frail. But when I went to see her, the laugh lines were still there. This is a woman who lost both sons to muscular dystrophy and all of her grandsons to muscular dystrophy. It's a uh, male-dominant kind of thing, and it is hereditary. And, and yet she could still smile, and all she wanted to hear was stories. All she wanted to do was feel love. And she lives in an apartment that's not as big as my office. And it was probably 110 degrees because I brought the heat from the south with me to Buffalo for those couple days. And I sweat. I haven't sweat as bad as I did up there in I don't know how long. And um, but but Betty said to me, "I want one more vacation." And when I was talking to my girls, I said, "Where do I want to go?" And she said, "She wants to come here to be with me." And sure enough, I showed up for her. She couldn't come with me because she had an infection. But she's going to think about it, take the train, and maybe come down here, and this will be her last vacation. And I'm more than willing to open my arms to her um, and show her as good a time as she can have with COPD and five heart attacks and stents. And she's had breast cancer. She's been through it all. And she still smiles, and she still loves me, and I still love her. And the only argument we had is that she thinks that Obama's wonderful. <clears throat> That's Buffalo. That's the way they are. So anyway... Um, then I got to see my daughter and my granddaughter, and that was the best thing about the trip. Um, no politics there. It was just all fun. We went out for a Greek dinner, which I cannot get here in Alabama, so I was ready to take 10 of them home with me, but I didn't. And I uh, had a great time there, and I was going to stay overnight completely and leave early in the morning, but I saw all the storms in the central United States, and I had to drive there. So I, I left about 11 o'clock at night. And um, had kind of a hard trip because I was so tired. And by the time I was halfway home, uh, I, I had actually almost gone off the road. But the car started beeping at me, woke me up. I was sound asleep at the wheel. It scared the hell out of me. I said, my God, when I, when I flashed open and my reflexes kicked in right away to get me back on the road, I said, you know, another 10 seconds, I was, I was gone. And uh, so they saved me on the way home. I, it didn't matter if I drank coffee or anything. and Nothing was going to keep me awake till I got south enough past uh, Louisville, I stopped somewhere and I got a sweet tea, which is very southern. And the sweet tea kept me going until I got home. And I had promised to be home by, by 7.30. And I got home at 6.45 central time. And I had, if you look at the map from where I went, I started out in Alabama and went up through Georgia and South Carolina, North Carolina, into Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, and then across New York met with with um, Tim, which was the dip, went up to Letchworth, went over to Buffalo, and then came back down through Ohio and um, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and uh, Kentucky and Tennessee, and back into Alabama. If you draw a line, it's a big heart. So this was a love trip. This was something that, that took a while, and it wasn't easy, and it was very diverse. Um, but the main thing was, is that everywhere I went, what I tried to do was really maintain who I've always been, that I try to come from love always, and that love is my religion. The earth is my church, no matter which state or which country, and that truth is my road, and I would be truthful with everyone, not only in the, what I was saying to them or what I was teaching to them, but the, the way I looked, the way I talked, everything. It's just truth. There's no, no hypocrisy, no phoniness, no anything. And, and, and look at the love that I not only got from people, but was able to give. 
And that was important. And that's what changes the world. I know that 17-year-old is talking about me this week. I know that Jim is thinking about what we talked about. I know the woman from Wales is now teaching people about health care, things that she didn't know before. Oh, and I sat at the fountain with a man from Jamaica who was totally into spirituality and really, really hates what's going on with the black-white divisions. And I know that he's praying that those divisions stop. Um, I know that, that those 500-plus teachers who came up to me afterwards and said they would never forget this, that, or the other, that they went back to school on Monday and Tuesday, today and tomorrow, and that they're going to share things, and things are going to pop up in the classroom, and they're going to use some of those tools, and they're going to be surprised how they work. And other teachers are going to see that, and it's going to change things. Um, I know that my, my daughter, who receives advice from me now on a regular basis without any kind of complaint, listened to me this time, and, and really listened, and that her daughter totally enjoyed our company together, and it was different than being with her mom and dad or whatever. Um, and I even know that the people who saved my life on the road, who saw me going off the road and started beeping like crazy to wake me up, and then stayed close to make sure that I wasn't going to fall asleep until I could get off at an exit, uh, that those people's lives were also impacted. So I guess the message for this whole podcast is that we, we can make a difference, a huge difference. And it can be one person at a time. It can be just you. You don't have to go join a rally. You don't have to do whatever. But you, but you need to, to do the work, and you need to be committed to making that difference. And, and do it with your heart. Start there. Forget about what you're hearing or thinking or imagining or presuming or assuming or whatever it is you're doing. Just come from your heart. And, and then spontaneously let your heart and your soul take over. And I guarantee you it's never going to be a negative thing. It's going to be a positive change that you first cause in you because you grow each time you do that and that you cause in others as you do it. Not, not some dictate from a book or a text or a, a Bible or whatever. Don't do that. Come from your heart. That's where love starts. Love starts from vulnerability in your soul. And that soul says, all I want is love. And you can't have love without being vulnerable. Being vulnerable means getting rid of your ego and moving to your heart. And then when your heart feels that, it opens up. People can feel it open up, and they want theirs to open up with yours. And the next thing you know, you have people talking to you and hugging you and loving you, and you don't even know their last names. And then you don't have to. Go to earthwalk-usa.com. That's where my website is. And also, if you're a teacher and you want some of the books from the conference, go to drreina.vpweb.com, and you'll find the books there. They're still on discount for seven days, so make sure you get them now. Um, I am going to be moving also into some solar things I'm going to introduce to people in a couple of weeks. I, I believe in solar. I've got little solar things everywhere uh, and, and some totally non-toxic, non-GMO, non-gluten, non-everything products that I have now discovered and tried and verified. And I'll let you know about it in about oh, two weeks or so. All right. Okay. Memorial Day is coming up. Get your flags ready. They should be out every day anyway, but just in case. And um, spread the word. Take this podcast. and Don't just say, I like it on Facebook. Share it. It's important that you share. Nobody's going to learn or change or do anything unless it comes from you. Okay. Thanks very much for listening. This is Raina G.